Good morning. Are you blessed today? Say amen. amen. We're so thrilled to have you. If uh, this is your first time, my name is Michael. I'm the lead pastor here at Victory, and we're thrilled that you've come to be with us. A lot of great churches in the West Memphis, Marion area, and we just want to welcome you and thank you for being with us. Make yourselves at home. Uh, we're, we're concluding a series that we've been on now for seven weeks prior. Today is number eight. Uh, it is called The Principle of the Path. And as I drove in this morning, I happened to uh, be thinking about how oddly this weather is hitting us. It's supposed to be January weather here in about the next few hours with some uh, frozen precipitation. And then that out of the blue that hit Thursday, um, I was just driving along just thanking God for His goodness. And I happened to look over to the sign of the gas station there at J&P at Medel Marconi. And for, I want to just be totally honest with you. A couple of years ago, I got really ticked off because it was over $4 a gallon. And I started praying, saying, God, I just ask you for gas at two forty nine again in the name of Jesus. And, and some of you think, well, do you really think you got credit for that? I said, well, I don't know, but I've been praying it. So, uh, and I want you to know that since I've been watching it drop on a consistent basis, I've altered my prayer and I've been asking for one eighty nine a gallon. So... Uh, Anyway, I just, I'm, I don't know whether, you know, I, I know that God is way bigger than, in, than being in, concerned about our little gas prices, and certainly on a cosmic level, but I do believe He hears the prayers of people that faithfully lift up to Him. So that, if anything, cre- creates some faith and hope and, in God's ability to hear every one of us, because we have a mediator. His name is Jesus. It's not because my prayers are so great, but I'm trusting in the one whose prayers are great. His name is Jesus. Come on, somebody. So we're, we're thrilled to have you today. I'm, I'm just, uh, I, I was thinking about that today as I pulled by and I saw 253. And I'm thinking, man, it's just almost there. Uh, and, and so there's always something to be thankful for. There's always something, no matter how bleak the circumstances are, how difficult you're facing, no matter what the adversity is, uh, maybe the news that you've gotten recently, there's always something to put a smile on your face and say, thank you, Jesus. So we're thrilled today that you've come to join us and say thank you, Jesus, with us today. If you would stand with me one more time, please, as we read our final text for this series. It's found in the Old Testament prophet of Micah, Micah chapter 4 and verse 2. So let's read together. And many nations shall come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. Stop right there. Say those two phrases. Teach us his ways. Walk in his paths. That's what we've been driving home all seven messages prior to today and this eighth one as we finish. Conclude the message or conclude the verse with me, please, as, as it follows. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. That has been fulfilled now for 2,000 years. Jesus walked into Jerusalem and he gives us a new commandment. Notice it's not the law from Sinai, but this is the law from Zion. Zion, Jerusalem, the highest mountain in all of Israel. And so we recognize that God's given us right, He's written a new law on our hearts. And that is the law now that is empowered by the gospel. It's love, love that keeps every commandment out of a whole new kind of nature. And so this morning I want to join with you in our message text for today. It's found in the longest chapter in the Bible. I was about 10 years old and I was uh, down at a church on 18th Street called Revival Temple. And a little sister who was probably in her late 70s, who was my babysitter growing up, her name was Sister White. And she would lay hands on me and pray over me as a youngster and tell me that God had His hand on my life. And I remember the prayer meeting that we were in when she decided the Lord had spoken to her to read Psalm 119. Psalm 119 has 176 verses. And we stood 
in prayer holding hands while Sister White read 176 verses. Now, how many of you thankful that I'm not going to read 176 <laughs> verses to you this morning? Okay, we're going to get about four. So here we go. Let's look. This is Psalm 119. Read out loud heartily with me. Here we go. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Last verse. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Bow your hearts with me, please, for a word of prayer. God, thank you today that we come to you not on our merit, not on our righteousness, but because of a gift that you have given to us in your Son, the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you. Thank you today that he came and lived a perfect and a sinless life in every way, obeying every piece of your law. Every jot and every tittle was fulfilled in Him. Thank you for the promises of God. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And we have the privilege today of coming boldly, even as Clint said, come boldly before the throne of grace and find grace to help in time of need, grace and mercy. God, we thank you for that. I acknowledge before you and everyone hearing my voice right now that I'm utterly dependent upon you. I cannot do anything apart from you. But Jesus, I'm thankful today that you live on the inside of me and that I'm not apart from you. I ask you to minister today to the hearing ears of these people, that you would arrest and capture hearts for the sake of the kingdom of God, that you would cause the gospel to penetrate the depths of the soil of the souls of every person in this room this morning and do what only the Holy Spirit can do. Have your way in this place. Speak through my voice and let the voice within the voice be that which your people hear. I'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated this morning. The presence of the Lord. We have looked at a critical principle that has been building in this series from the outset. And that is this principle that direction, not intention, determines your destination. We've said it every week several times, direction, not intention, determines destination. We've worn out the geographical analogy of my intention to go have dinner tonight with my daughter in Nashville, but if I get on 55 going north or south, I'll either end up in St. Louis or New Orleans, I won't be anywhere near Nashville. The direction of the path I'm on is going to take me in the path that it's been made to take me and it's not going to change. No matter how much I intend to be in Nashville, I'm going to end up in St. Louis or New Orleans. And we take this and shift it over into our daily lives where we have the tendency to have this great disconnect. And for some reason, we want to sort of put a set of brackets or a parenthesis around every one of our individual decisions as if they don't have an impact on every other part of our lives. So what we've been attempting to do is to show you that these decisions that we make on a daily basis do have impacts in every other area of our lives and that our lives have influence on other people and that in every very real sense we are in, 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 a, in one kind of sense connected one to another. And, and as much as we would like to look at the other person and say it's none of your business, once you've made the decision it becomes our business because then 
the product of the decision is brought to bear, whether it is a good one or a bad one. And certainly it is the business of those immediately connected to you in family and relationships and friendships and things that we do and goofy things. And Decisions have consequences. Decisions have consequences because they begin with an idea and a thought. And we're going to be talking about some of these things this morning. And I think it's interesting that the psalm ends right here where we've chosen this passage about giving me understanding and inclining my heart and showing me and teaching me, but it ends up here with turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Because my focus is so critical. In this number eight in this series on the principle of the path, we've got one new principle all of a sudden that we're going to introduce here at the very end, and it's going to trump the one that I've been telling you all along every week. Direction, not intention, determines destination. That's the principle we've been learning, and it still very much is in effect. But now I've got one that's going to be bigger than that because the one I'm going to give you today is going to determine the direction that I'm going in. This is the principle. Go with me. Attention, not, uh, I'm sorry, attention determines direction. Look at this. Look at your neighbor and say, what you look at determines the way you go. Now, this is what I want you to see. 2010... It's a snowy February day, and I'm coming around Trigg out of my neighborhood where we've lived for the last 18 years, and I drop my phone in my Jeep, and it's a custom Jeep. I've got three-inch lift and great big tires, and it's, 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 a, it's a man's, man's vehicle. I love it. I'm proud of it. I'm excited about it. I love to drive it. Uh, And before I know it, I reach for my phone that has gone all the way into the floorboard over here, and I do what we do without thinking about it. I steer the way that I'm reaching, and I land that wonderful Jeep in about four feet of water in the slough and total it. And some of you guys are going, well, I just lost the respect for Pastor Michael. He's an idiot. (laughs) Uh, and I'm just trying in a very real sense to be completely transparent with you and to show you that, man, sometimes no matter how confident we think we are as men and our ability to do things, we can lose our attentions for just a moment and we can steer in a direction that we never intended to go in and it can create a significant loss. Now, I have good insurance. Thankful that it wasn't a, a sinful issue that my wife had to forgive me of, although she was a little ticked off for a little while. My insurance agent probably still is because it got me a whole brand new Jeep out of the process. Um, Very, very similar to a little story that I heard growing up, and that was an old farmer who was trying to train and raise up his son to be able to hand the farm to. He'd had all girls, and he was just one boy in the family, and the son was the baby of the family, and the son was about 12 years old now, and the son had always been very connected to his dad, loved his father, and He had spent time during the day over the years as every one of the children had had their daily farm chores. It was a little self-contained farm, a few hundred acres. And they they made a good living and sold the the surplus of their crops and were able to always fare pretty well, even in difficult economies. And so he was hoping that his son was going to be able to take the farm and be successful and maybe grow it into something even greater. Sort of the principle of standing on the shoulders of, of the generation that has gone before us. The dad had worked hard, the farm was paid for. So he's trying to teach the son, you know, basically how to take responsibility and do things that need to be done. It's time to plant. It's in the spring, and so 
He, he tells the son, hey, listen, you've ridden on the tractor with me before. You've actually set up in the, in the seat with me right there, you know, with you and sort of helping guide you. He said, but I, you know, you're, you're, you're 12, 13 years old. I don't remember the exact, this is actually a true story that a friend of mine told. And the, the farmer said, but I'm going to give you the keys to the tractor and I want you to go out and plow that particular field on the other side of that pasture over there and let's get it ready for planting. Son's real excited about it. He heads out and he's plowing four or five rows and the dad gets out in his farm truck and he goes over there to see and he gets out and he's kind of scratching his head going, I guess I didn't train this boy right because the, the rows are kind of waving at him. They're, and he waves at his son, he calls him in, he comes over, turns the tractor off and he looks at him and he says, what's wrong? You know, what, what's up with these friendly rows? And the son said, friendly rows? He said, yeah, they're waving at me. <laughs> he said, we need straight rows. We want straight rows so that the harvesters can come in and be able to get as much possibly out of in terms of production per acre so that we can make as much money as we possibly can. And you, you can't do that when, you, when your rows aren't straight. So he says, remember what I've always told you. Find something on the other end of the field and look at that thing and then plow toward it. And so he figures the sun has got it. He'll get it this time. He goes on off and works two or three hours and comes back. And he comes back and the sun has plowed acre after acre after acre in this great big huge expansive area and he comes back and he's more frustrated because they're worse than they were at first. And the dad said, what is wrong with you? I told you to look at something over there when you're plowing on either end of the field and make sure that you don't take your eyes off of that because the direction you look in is that your attention is going to determine your direction, son. He said, well, dad, I did. And he said, well, what are you looking at? He said, I was looking at Bessie, the cow. Well, you know the obvious. Bessie is gradually moving. And she's not saying in the same place. And so the, the, the simplicity of that story is, is that whatever you're looking at is going to determine the direction in which you're, you're walking in, the direction in which you're plowing the tractor of your life in. Listen as I read from Proverbs chapter 4. It says, Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. Turn your foot away from evil. And it's the first principle that we're going to hit here this morning that I want you to see. And that's the things we give our attention to in life influence the direction of our lives. Read that out loud with me. The things we give our attention to in life influence the direction of our lives. Therefore... The principle we've been learning from the beginning in this series, direction, not intention, determines your destination, all of a sudden is trumped by a higher principle. What I focus on, what I look at, what I give my attention to is going to determine the direction in which I'm moving. That has a direct bearing on the destination to which I will arrive at. The destiny in a larger general sense in my life is determined by the things that I continue to focus on. And what, what I want to help you see is that what I let myself think about, what I am continuously looking at, is it something that is stable, unmovable, and unchanging? Like the Word of God, the law of the Lord, the gospel that He's given to empower me? Or is it... Basically something that is moved and changes by winds and waves of changing doctrines or ideas or 
uh, basically new ideas that are trending in society because this generation does things a little differently than the last one does? In the middle of all the change that is radically happening around us, do I have something that I can tie my boat to, something that I can anchor down to in the middle of the climactic changes of a storm, even in the culture in which I live? Because whatever I focus on is going to determine my direction. Uh, you know, I, 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 can, I, I can be talking all day long and looking at you, and before I know it, if I keep going, I'm going to roll out here on the floor. Now, I'm not going to give that as an illustration, literally. Or I can just keep talking here and looking along the way, and before you know it, I'm going to end up having a collision. Just like I reached for my phone and I steered in the direction that I was reaching in and totaled a perfectly good Jeep. The thing is, is that wrong turns can cost us hours on a trip, a road trip, but wrong decisions can cost us years in our lives toward a great marriage, toward accomplishing financial goals. And there are some people that would say, you know, really, why do you even take the time to preach on this? This is just kind of a self-help type situation. And the crazy thing is, is that when people reduce the gospel to a forgiveness and die and go to heaven, it is such a simplistic, ridiculous reductionism. Jesus speaks to every one of these things. Those people try to preach the gospel apart from everything Jesus preached in the gospels. And he speaks to these things. He speaks to issues on how you treat other people in relationships. He, because get, this is the deal. Folks who want to melt the gospel down into that one little kind of an idea have a tendency to focus on, take this scripture, straight is the gate and narrow is the way. So it all becomes about going through the gate, having the experience of turning your life to Christ, but nothing is ever talked about in terms of what you learn walking along the way following Jesus. It's one thing to come through the gate into eternal life. It's something else to learn how to become a disciple and follow Jesus on a daily basis. Come on, somebody, are you hearing what I'm saying? So the gospel is not just for the gate. The gospel is for the whole way. The gospel is not just forgiveness and dying and going to heaven. The gospel is getting delivered and being free and having a testimony in the middle of a dark culture and being light. Come on, somebody. In the middle of lack, having the provision of God in your life. It speaks to all of those areas. Now, I know that there are people who've taken every one of these things we could talk about and shift toward that move and they become health and wealth, prosperity kinds of preachers. And many times that's just because they see a lack in what evangelicalism has not given and so they basically knee-jerk and swing the pendulum too far trying to add to because for so many years evangelicalism has been captivated in its attention with the idea that in order to be spiritual, you have to be poor and suffer and be sick. How I many of you know Jesus doesn't get any glory out of any of that stuff? Or the lack of it. I don't want to swing the pendulum so far over here that we start to do the, the dreaded mistake of, of saying how one group will say, well, God never does that, and the other group will say, God always does that. And you will always make a mistake anytime you take a principle or a promise and you try to twist God's arm and you try to say, no, that's not for today. He doesn't do that anymore. God never does that. Or this group that says, God always, because you're in trouble on either end of that. You need to learn to walk with the Lord and put your trust in Him. What was it Job said, though He slay me, yet will I trust Him? I'll be honest with you. I, personally, I'm facing some circumstances right now that are a little bit frightening. But my trust is in the Lord. And if I breathe my last, 
I'm going to be welcomed in to the greatest reward that I've ever seen in my whole life. So there, there's, a, there's a way, there's a sense and way I'm looking at this whole thing in the provision of God. <laughs> if I live, I lose. If I die, I lose. And I'm thankful that, I mean, I'm sorry, if I, if I live, I win. If I die, I win. I said that the wrong way. Like the old guy that says, I got my tongue wrapped around my eye tooth and I couldn't see what I was saying. Bad preacher joke. Attention determines your direction. So what are you looking at? It's like the young man who comes to me in prayer and he says, Pastor, I, I want to walk with God, but I'm just struggling with the temptation because of the relationship that I have with this young lady. And I have young men in our church that have come to me and said, you know, I, I, I just, I'm struggling. I've got to be honest. I want to confess. I'm, we're, we're keeping it pure, but it's a struggle to keep things pure because he's wrestling down very normal, very typical physiological desires that God has equipped him to have that he has to learn how to regulate and bring glory to God in the midst of that. And then learn that those desires are blessed by God when you express them in the proper way that God has said express them. And that's between a man and a woman and in a covenant of marriage. But the young men come and they say, you know, I, I'm just struggling. And I'm just going to be honest with you, Pastor. This is my struggle because, I mean, after all, sin is sin. And didn't Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount that if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, then you've already committed adultery with that woman in your heart? And I've actually had young men say to me over the last 25 years of ministry, it's, it's happened two or three times in conversations, in men's meetings, in men's groups, and they come up and they say, you know, I, I don't get it. If, if, if just me thinking it is going to be the same penalty that I have if I do it, then why not go ahead and do it and at least enjoy it? Now, ladies, that's just how a man thinks, Okay. I told you we keep it real here at Victory. And what I have to do then is undo years of bad teaching in Southern churchianity. Because we've always heard all of our lives that all sin is sin. And that's true, but all sin is not the same. It's real quiet in here. We've all been affected by this nonsense teaching that we've grown up hearing. All sin is sin. And the man who lusts in his heart's the same thing as if he does the deed. And that's not what Jesus said. He said he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, I don't know about you, but in my heart and in the bed are two totally different experiences. Am I being too plain? What I wrestle with up here is between me and God. When I involve another person, I have just sinned against her and I've sinned against my wife. And you've got to recognize there's a difference in... A sin in thought, a sin in word, and a sin in deed. What Jesus was saying at the Sermon on the Mount is not trying to tighten the screws down on everybody and make it harder. He was trying to show us that if you can learn to identify this weed that's growing up in your mind and cut it off at the root before it grows up and bear fruit, lust is the root, adultery is the fruit. Same thing Jesus said with murdering your brother. You've heard it said in the law, you shall not kill. He says, but I say to you, if you have anger in your heart toward a brother, does that mean that when you get mad that you're going to be penalized as if you kill somebody? Well, of course not. That's stupid. What is it saying? If you can recognize the anger and back up and breathe and cut it off at the root of anger, you will never manifest the fruit of murder. Everybody say roots and fruits. Roots. 
What you give your attention to is where the direction that your feet are going to walk in. If you let yourself be consumed with lust, you will be on the path and you will fulfill the lust. If you carry the anger to the point that you continue to intensify and passionately move in that direction, you'll probably pull the trigger, wave the hatchet, whatever, to kill somebody. Because the fruit will always produce, I'm sorry, a root will always produce a fruit. If you can cut it off at the thought, the root, then you will never produce the action. What did Stephen Covey say in his famous book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People? He quoted, it's an unknown quote, I don't know where it comes from, but it's so great, it's biblical, because it's basically Genesis 1, the law of seed time and harvest. Galatians 6, 9, 6, 7, Be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever man sows, that shall he also reap. Sow a thought, reap an action. Sow an action, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Sow a character, reap a destiny. All of that began in thoughts. And our thoughts begin with what we're looking at. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Job prayed and he said, God, I make a covenant with my eyes that I will not look on a young woman in lust. So you have to learn to divert your attention. You have to learn to change the channel. You see something come across the television and you you realize, hey, I I don't need to watch this. I don't need to put this in because what I put in is going to come out. And so you get up and change the, the channel. No, you quit doing that 30 years ago. You go, where is that infernal remote? And you look for the remote and you dig and you pull out cushions out of the couch and you finally find the remote and you change the channel. If I were to tell everybody in this room today that if you'll meet me at 9 o'clock in the morning and you can make it the rest of the day and all night tonight and not think about pink elephants, I'll give you $500. And you guess what? Everybody in this room is going to think about all night long. What? Pink elephants. And that's because when you set your heart or your mind to not think about something, you're in the process already thinking about what you're trying not to think about. So you can't defeat... Let me back up and say it to you this way. You won't be tempted in an area that you don't think about. You can't be tempted with stuff you don't think about. I'll be honest. I don't want to say this in a, in a, in a condescending kind of way, but people come to me and I, 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 I pray for them in love and sometimes I just scratch my head and I go, how can that be a temptation for anybody? Because I don't understand your struggle. It's not the same as mine. I have issues I have to wrestle down. Why? Because it's the things that I think about. I, 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 just, I, I just can't get it. I, I, I will have compassion on somebody that's trapped in, in some kind of destructive pattern of behavior that's related to drugs. And drugs have just never been an issue for me in my life. And I just go, really? But I, the Holy Spirit has to remind me and go, but yeah, but think about this. I mean, you need to leave that cheesecake alone in the name of Jesus, brother. <laughs> Y'all don't look at me in that tone of voice. I can sit there and bind the calories over that white chocolate raspberry drizzling off the side. I mean, just think, get the Holy Ghost in the moment. And, and, and that's my struggle. No, really, honestly, my struggle is just plain old good meat and potatoes and too much of it and not getting enough exercise. So, you, you know, when, when I think a minute, I don't understand your temptation. I don't have to because I got my own set that I have to wrestle down myself. So I don't think I'm judging you and yours just because maybe an area where you're struggling and sinning is different than mine. Help me this morning. 
But I'm just being honest. There's stuff sometimes I scratch my head and I go, why is that even a temptation? You know, crack for me is not a temptation because I've never smoked the first rock. I wouldn't identify it. Couldn't know what it was if you showed me one. I'd think it was just probably a pebble or something. I mean, I was so sheltered. Let me tell you something. My aunt and uncle never had any children and they had a couple little hamburger stands, a dairy freeze in, in both Mark Tree and Truman, Arkansas. And I remember one time Aunt Lucille showed me a $5 bill that was really washed out. She said, that's some of that laundered money. <laughs> I know you're hearing me now looking over the balcony of heaven and I love you. And I'm in college and I had to go, Aunt Lucille, laundered money is when you run it through a set of <laughs> accounts in Caribbean banks and then back over to Switzerland and back and you are able to mask it for the sake of taxes for the federal government. She said, no, they run that through the washing machine and they suck that cocaine up through that rounded up dollar bill and they get it off of by laundry. And I said, no, no, ma'am, that's not how it works. <laughs> and she believed that. She argued with me about it. No, ma'am. Anyway, and that's enough of that story. Isn't that amazing how we can believe stuff? And it just... We, our attention is focused in a certain direction and we can think a certain way and it just heads us in a path. Believe things about God that are not true. Believe things about the struggle that we're facing because it's what we've been taught our whole lives in a bad religious upbringing. Or thinking that we really are worthless because we had bad parenting and somebody who was an alcoholic or a, trapped in some kind of drug addictive pattern of behavior who regularly took out and vented their anger because of their own disappointing life and they've told a poor child growing up their whole life that they were worthless and stupid and would never amount to anything. And a couple of people like that, I have no idea who I'm talking to, that's the Holy Ghost because it just went right across here and up out of here. I'm telling you, you are not worthless and God doesn't make any junk. You don't have to believe that nonsense. But stuff gets encrypted, stuff gets indelibly printed into the soul of our lives and we attach ourselves to it and we believe in it. And I just want you to recognize that you do have the ability to make choices in what you think about. And if you don't think about something, you won't be tempted in that area. It means you have to learn how to displace the wrong thought and replace it with the right one. Not thinking about pink elephants is still thinking about pink elephants. But you displace that thought by turning the channel in your mind and putting something else on. You listen to a praise and worship song or you quote some scripture, you memorize it and you begin to meditate on that. A couple of weeks ago I actually did this but it still is worth repeating because there's some guests here for the very first time. I want you to do the little quick experiment again. Right now I want you to start at 10 and count down silently in your mind. Start now. Say the ABCs. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, K. Come on, help me. H, I, J, K. What happened to the count? It stopped. Words are always more powerful than thoughts. The Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And when I can take the Word of God and quote it and I hear with my ears saying it out loud, not only does my faith grow, but it changes the direction in which I'm thinking. And if I'm tempted with something and I need to wrestle my way out of that, trying to wrestle it down and say I'm not going to think about what I'm thinking about, you're already thinking about what you're trying not to think about. But you displace it by replacing it with the right thing to think about. 
which is the Word of God. Somebody say amen. amen. If you'll deal with the root, you will never bear the fruit, whether it's anger or it's adultery or whatever. I want to take my last 10 minutes I'm going to share with you a story. I deliberately only put two sections in this message because I want to take the last part of my time on the life of an individual that we revere. We love David. David is a phenomenal Old Testament story. He's a a crazily interesting character who is so human in his struggles. I I grew up going to bed at night with my Bible on the night table beside me and reading the Psalms. And my aunt that I told you the story about would always tell me, take a little pen and she would always keep me, you know, loaded up with journals and a little pencil that was red on one end and blue on the other. Remember those pencils? You remember seeing those? She just thought those were so cool. So she'd have a pack of sharpened ones and go, here, here's your two for your Bible study. (laughs) And I was just, I would eat it up, you know. I'd get, get a new Bible, and I would be like this. I'd just smell the paper. And I know you think that's probably weird, and there's a Saturday Night Live episode coming here. But I, <laughs> I would just, I would, I'm just a very tactile person. I love books, and I, I, love, I love God's Word, and I would, I would read it, and it was just a sensory experience. And, and I would take that little red pencil, and I would underline, I'd take the, turn it over to the blue side, and I would date when I'd read that. And maybe something that stood out to me as a young man. And I started hiding the word of the Lord in my heart at a young age. And David was just always kind of a hero. And the more I read about David, though, if, if, if I hadn't really understood how crazy about God he was, he was this amazing man's man. He was a warrior. At the same time, he was a poet. He was kind of the Renaissance man. He, he excelled excellently in, in things of the spirit and of the soul. And at the same time, he would go out and, and take down a bear but without his with his own hands, and he would he would he would take a slingshot, and he would uh, take a little stone and, and kill a lion, and and rescue a sheep from the from the jaws of the lion, and, and and there was something about this guy that just just moved me, and I I wanted to be like him, and yet the more that I learned about this amazing warrior poet who became a king, in all of his struggles, he would talk about I laid down and slept, and the Lord sustained me. He said, He is the glory and the lifter up of my head. When my head was bowed down, He raised me up and He he set my feet on a solid rock and He brought me up out of the miry clay and out of the mud and He put a new song in my mouth and many shall see it and fear the Lord. I'm quoting Psalm 40. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? And and I'm thinking about David in Psalm 27, hiding in the back of a dark cave, running from a man that he loved who was the king. His name was Saul. And in the middle of that darkness, David is saying, Lord, you're my light, you're my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And I'm thinking about how many times God has ministered to me and through the words of David. And a guy who is so human, a guy who lusted after a woman and then had her husband killed when he found out that she was pregnant. A man who committed adultery and a man who committed murder and a man who repented and a man in the New Testament that the Bible says in the book of Acts was a man after God's own heart. And it floors me. I'm thinking, God, how can you take somebody so messed up, so jacked up, and you reveal the glory of the Lord through this crazy dude? 
And I read and I'm, I'm, I'm going over through Samuel and I'm, I'm hanging out in these three chapters where we're looking at it today. And I'm thinking about this amazing guy who loved God with all of his heart and who, who killed the lion and the bear and the giant. I mean, you talk about preaching material. Satan is the lion, the bear is the world, and the giant is the carnal mind. I mean, you, my goodness, this guy, he's whipped all the enemies. But he couldn't whip himself. He couldn't win the constant struggle against himself. And he commits adultery with Bathsheba and the baby dies. In the process, he kills her husband or has him killed. And I'm thinking about how Nathan the prophet came, come to, came, comes to him and tells him a story about a little farmer with one sheep and the rich man told, took that one sheep. David rises up off the throne and he, in anger and he said, that man should die. And Nathan points the prophetic finger of God and he says, thou art the man. And David he immediately falls down on his face and he writes one of the most beautiful psalms in all the Bible, Psalm 51, where he says, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit in me. And he talks about how broken he was and the sin that he'd committed. And he took responsibility for it. And the beautiful thing is, is that God accepted his prayer and restored him and gave him forgiveness. That means there's hope for every person in this room this morning. That's the beauty, and I wish that I could just end the message and say hallelujah and go home. But that's not the end of the story. Though I can get forgiveness for my sin when I continually do it and I ignore a critical part of my life, I'm still going to reap a crop. And the thing where David was not good at was he was awful as a father. He was a great king. He could worship God. He could get provision. He could whip the enemy. He could kill the lion and the bear and the giant. And he could have the testimonies of the women of Israel shaking their tambourines and going, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. But David gets married at Hebron and he starts marrying his wives and he starts having sons and he's so consumed in his career as king that he's not involved in the lives of young men that desperately need a dad who happens to be the king. David had hopes for his sons just like every man sitting in this room under the sound of my voice this morning or for your daughters. David's firstborn is a handsome young man that scripture talks about how handsome he is and the leadership that's on his life. And David has great hopes. He has high hopes for Amnon. And the story of these three chapters unfolds and it's some of the saddest passages of Scripture in the Bible because you see the dysfunction with a capital D in the family of David in a king's house. Someone who is a leader. Someone that you expect to have a level of life above the rest. And David is it good? He's good at so many things, but there's a couple of things that he's neglected because his eye has been pulled in a direction and his attention has determined his direction. And his direction has not been in raising properly, making investments in and adjusting and correcting and directing his own sons in his own house. And Amnon is in lust. He's in lust not just for any ordinary woman, but he's in lust for his sister, Tamar. David's children, but from a different wife than Amnon is from. Amnon is his firstborn. It's David that there would always be someone of his lineage that would be upon the throne of Israel. Amnon is in so much lust 
one of his house servants by the name of Jonadab tells him, hey, why don't you come? The king will send word for you and find out what's going on. And sure enough, Amnon said, okay, I'll do that. Out of him, He's handsome. Leadership on his life. And Amnon says, I'm going to send some servants. And Amnon says, no, if you would, please send my sister Tamar. David should have story. Tamar comes in, cooks up the cake, gets everything ready. Okay, brother, it's ready. He says, no, bring it in here to me. He says, no, feed it to me. I want you to feed it to me with your own hand. She takes the cake, breaks it, starts to feed Amnon. She leaves broken, wounded. She begs him in the process, please, any honorable man in our nation of Israel. And she's begging him. And he basically just... And then he picks her up and kicks her out and bolts the door. He's, she's begging him, no, you, you have to take me now. gown, which is a significant... Uh, a, a piece of clothing, it signifies that she begins to walk through the city wailing at the top of her, of her voice. And people realize what's happened. Happen. That's it. David didn't go down there and whip the crap out of him. David didn't court. David didn't pass any judgment. David just got mad. David got angry. He, didn't, he is ready to take care of business, baby. He waits two years and lets it simmer on the given Amnon And David really thinks that he's still going to be able to put his firstborn on the throne. Absalom waits and he says, we're going to have... Don't send your servants, Dad. I'm I'm going to take care of it. I've got plenty. We're going to to take care of this. And and Absalom basically begs him until David says, okay, we'll send Amnon. David, his spirit, it's like he's an idiot concerning his children. Amnon goes out and kill him. And sure enough, the servants obeyed the commandment of Absalom and killed his brother. Everybody runs screaming, fleeing back to the city of Jerusalem. David has gotten a rumor that's incorrect that Absalom has killed all of the king's sons. He's going to make himself king, which is not true. Absalom goes into, he's a refugee, he's in hiding in the wilderness for two more years until Joab, David's own mighty man, his general in the army, hatches a plot and gets Absalom back to town. David has moped around for two years He's crestfallen. His firstborn son is dead. It's too late. It's too late. He, he should have been disciplining his sons years ago and he didn't get involved when he should have been. He ought to have been taking those boys on hunting trips. He ought to have been sitting them down and talking about how you treat a young lady the right way. He ought to have been sitting down and investing in their lives and saying, you know what? You are my son. You're going to behave this way because we walk according to the law of the Lord and he didn't do it. He was great in all these other areas, but he sucked as a dad. Sorry, that's too plain. It's awful. Absalom comes back to town. David does not even discipline him. He kisses Absalom on the head and he sends him to his own house and he says, you will never be in my presence again. He lives in town. He's not allowed to leave, not allowed to move. He's not really been given any penalty. There's been no discipline. Not really certain he's been given any forgiveness. And so Absalom gets a chariot and he gets 50 men to run in front of him. He has a whole entourage. He starts sitting out by the, by the gate. And the people that are disgruntled with the current pastor, the current king, I'm sorry, <laughs> that wouldn't, he didn't have time to see him, start stopping off talking to Absalom. And Absalom would say, which tribe are you from? What part of Israel are you from? And, and they would tell him and Absalom would say, oh, well, you, your story needs to be heard. Tell me what it is. And he would listen and at the end of every one of those he would say, well, if I were the king, this is what I would do. And he does it over and over and over for a couple of years until finally he sends word out through spies to the whole 12 tribes. And he says, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, 
Arise and say, Absalom is king. And he went to Hebron to anoint himself as the king. David finds out about it. Not only is his firstborn, who was going to be king, dead, killed by his next-in-line son, who is so handsome. I mean, the Bible stops and describes these guys as being great leaders. And, and, and the Scripture literally says that Absalom had won the hearts of the men of Israel to him. And so we've got a major revolt going on. Folks are critical of David, and they're rising up to follow Absalom. I wish I had time, I don't, to tell the rest of the story, other than to say it ends in a bad battle and and Absalom dies and David mourns. And this thing doesn't even stop here. We've got one son, two sons, and, and they're lost. And look as I give you the last passage of Scripture this morning. This is found in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 6. David has another son. His name starts with A as well. His name is Adonijah. Amnon's dead, Absalom is dead, David has never, ever, ever stopped to discipline his sons. 1 Kings 1.6, now Adonijah, the son of Haggith, that's the wife, different wife, but son of David, exalted himself saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. Listen to this. His father had never at any time displeased him by asking, Why have you done thus and so? He was also a very handsome man, and he was born next after Absalom. Think about this. In all the nonsense that these boys did, David never did say, Sit your carcass down right there, and you tell me why you're acting like a fool. Like any good dad would do. Like my dad did a number of times. Like I have done with my son and with my daughter. He refused to do it because his eyes were diverted and his attention was taking him in another direction. Somewhere in the middle of this outrageous dysfunction, I mean, this is, this is like Dr. Phil and Maury Povich and, and Jerry Springer all wrapped up in one episode. One son raping a daughter and another son killing the first son and he gets killed, caught by his hair in a tree. And then another son decides he's going to make himself the king and you're, you're scratching your head going, how can a man so great, who the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart, succeed in so many areas and blow it in one so critical? And that is how you raise your children. Somewhere along the line, he had to back up and go, this is too late, I've waited too long. And the, 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 the point is this that I want you to see. A wrong turn on a trip can cost you a few hours. But a wrong decision in life can make you lose years. It's a cute little quote at the end as I wrap this message to conclusion today. Vince Lombardi, the very famous Green Bay Packers coach, said, we didn't lose, we just ran out of time. And that's just kind of a fairy tale approach to life, isn't it? Because everything in life has a beginning and an end. Football game has a, the clock starts and the clock stops. And that's a nice way to say, hey, you know, we didn't lose. We just ran out of time. But you know, folks, when time runs out and it's too late and the kids are grown and you didn't invest in them and they're acting like idiots because you've always let them act that way, when it's too late because you've waited so long that everything else had your attention and you couldn't give your wife that little date night once in a while and she finally looks at you and she says, I can't do this anymore. I don't love you anymore. There's nothing to rebuild. It's too late. 
I, I have never been one to do any kind of fear tactics, but I'll tell you, if you just keep putting off making Jesus the Lord of your life, there'll come a moment where it'll be too late. There'll come a moment where you'll wake up after going to sleep, but it's not the sleep that gives you rest, it's the sleep that brings you death. And you wake up looking the one in the face that you've basically put off your whole life. There's a time when it's too late. I want to tell you, if you have breath in your lungs this morning and you're alive today, it's not too late. God gives every person the space of repentance. As I close this series this morning, this last message, and we pray this prayer and we say the amen and end this service, you have a moment right now and nobody has confidence or certainty of having the next moment after it. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may apply our hearts.